Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Oh captain, my captain. Welcome to Oh Captain, my captain. Uh, series three. Episode three. Uh, my name is Mark Olver, and I am here uh, with Ricky Masindo. Um, how are you, Rikudzo? I'm good, Mark. How's it going? Do you know what? It's all right. I don't think I can complain too much. I am actually in my house, which is rare. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, looking over my garden, which is an absolute state. Uh, I'm just on my way to Birmingham. Uh, why did you laugh at that? Why did you laugh at my garden being a state? It just really fits the brand, doesn't it? <laughs> it, just, it just, yeah, I just was not surprised. I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that, isn't it? I kind of, I don't, I don't feel in my head like I am someone whose garden would be a state. But then when you <laughs> laugh, you go, well, that fits around. I'm going, yeah, no, that is a good point. I do like the, t- look like the type of person whose garden would be a state. <laughs> My garden's a mess too, don't worry. But I am 22. Yeah, all right, mate. All right. Um, so you've not, uh, you've not done any gigs since last week? No, no, not since last week, no. Today, this week was my little week off. Um, have you had any feedback to the Andrew Birds episode, How to Save Money? I've had quite a few people contact me going that was weirdly one of the most useful ones we've had. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of people tell me, uh, basically saying that they've taken inspiration from how far he's willing to go to save money. And it was just funny because he literally lives what he preaches because he went to a hotel that he runs a gig in to use their Wi-Fi. And it's just beautiful. <laughs> Do you know what? I I always listen back to the episodes uh, before I tweet them about them and let people know about them. I don't know why. I don't know if there would ever be a day that I wouldn't tell people to uh, listen to it and go, yeah, I'm not going to tweet about that one. Um, I don't think so. Um, but I always listen to them. And it was funny and it was a bit stupid. And it was obviously a bit weird listening to two old men talking about how much they like to save money, especially when they did when they started. But I actually I actually thought it was quite, like, there were some quite good, serious points to be made about kind of equality in comedy, about, you know, access to comedy, just in terms of what you need to do when you see barriers in front of you. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I think we we dealt with it well because there was there was some stuff that we were talking about, like, um, is comedy too expensive? How can you make it cheaper? Is it for everyone? And yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about definitely in the future. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I'm I I want to approach different kind of slightly more serious subjects sometimes, um, but without making it sound or feel preachy. Sometimes <laughs> I think we'd have to be preachy. Sometimes I think we'd have to. Um, Ricky Masindo, you are someone who, correct me if I'm wrong, you went to a good school, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a lovely little school. had a nice um, you go, You go to a good university. Yeah, you do, yeah. Uh, you do medicine. You were a little choir boy. You, uh, yeah, wasn't little. Play the yeah. piano. You yeah. were are president of the wine society. Yes, I am. You are a man who has managed to find himself doing quite a lot of middle class pursuits. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah? Are we yeah, happy yeah. with that? That middle-class pursuit. I don't know why I find that funny. It just sounds <laughs> like boring. Like mowing the garden is middle-class pursuit. Middle-class pursuit. But do, have you... And also doing stand-up, which a lot of people think 
you know, and we had this argument last week, is, is it a middle class pursuit? Is it easier to do with your middle class? Yeah. But, so, do you have... <laughs> we talked in the past where I said in the Tanya Moore episode, Ricky, have yeah. you got any black friends? And Tanya <laughs> found that very Hilarious. funny. And so did so I'm gonna black ask friends you, as well. <laughs> I'm going to ask you now, Ricky, do you yeah. have many working class friends? Do you have any... Oh, many wow. <laughs> I love how that's that's low key a worse question somehow. <laughs> is that it? Is, that's a, that's an interesting point. That me saying, "Have you got any working class friends?" is a worse question than saying, "Have you got any black friends?" Yeah, because that implies because I I can't not see someone as black, but uh, that implies when I meet someone, I'm like, "Huh, what class is he?" Like, well, like. <laughs> <laughs> no, that I mean that's true, uh, but <laughs> you also like well, I just listed your hobbies, yeah, and none yeah. of your and and your pursuits, if you will, yeah, yeah, man, um, yeah. your middle class pursuits, pursuits, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question from a forty-six-year-old man who yeah. grew up working class. And is now I've got a smeg fridge freezer. I'm definitely middle class now, but <laughs> yeah, I am someone that has grew up middle working class. When I started stand up, didn't have much money. Um, yeah. So I know the people that I've surrounded myself with. Yeah, I yeah. don't know the people that you've surrounded yourself with. And I just gave you a list: wine yeah. society, choir, <laughs> medical school, <laughs> Bristol University. Nice school in Bedford. And so I think my question yeah. has validity. Do you have me- do you any have friends who are skint? Properly who are skint. Skint. Who come from single single parent families who would describe themselves as working class? Really interesting question. I would say um yes, but no. Yes, in that yeah, so so the school that I went to, Bedford School, it was unique in that it's a registered charity. So it was a uh, like it was like one of those poncy expensive schools like Harrow and Eton, but they gave away like ten percent of the people there came because they were on a scholarship for either music or sport or whatever. And because it was in the center of Bedford, which is like quite a well ranging town. Um, there were quite a few people whose parents were like quite uh, working class who I'm still quite close to today. So that that was kind of weird because it's something you never really thought about. It's only like now in uni that I know them now uh, grown up that I realize, oh, actually, you know, we, we actually came from quite different backgrounds. But yeah, so there was the, so that so, so there was that. But then also in my uh, in my summers between school in my sixth form, my mum used to make me work in warehouses like for the whole summer, basically working as a temp. So I've been to Furniture Village. I've been to Amazon. I've been to I've been to B&Q working as a driver's mate. So from that, I've made a few close friends. But all the people I see on a day to day are middle class. That's definitely true. OK, yeah, good. I mean, it's in- I just think it's really interesting. I think it's. Uh, I don't know what my point is, and I don't think I have a point uh, in the first case. Um, I just think it's really interesting to just explore who we are, where we come from, what kind of what our perspectives are, what our hopes are, what our ambitions are in terms of stand up, and often that is kind of flavoured by the people that you hang around with, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, the best thing, one of the best things about doing stand-up is that I have met a bunch of people who are now really good friends that are working class. And that's genuinely been a really nice thing because it's really, really easy to be in a bubble because it's, I mean, let's, let's not mess around. The thing that this podcast is constantly dancing around is the fact that it's very strange that I'm a stand-up comedian that I, in, I as a medical student have become a stand-up comedian. And like a lot of my friends, a lot of my friends are medics, but then I also have a bunch of friends who are stand-ups as well. And the people who are my friends who are medics, they would have no reason 
to meet any of the types of people that I meet when I'm doing stand up and like see the ranges of backgrounds because they essentially just they exist in that environment in that bubble. So it's yeah, it's been really nice to do that in stand up. Yeah, I also think um, uh, Gronio Maguire is our guest today. We're going to talk very specifically about writing comedy, but I also know that Gronio has a lot of thoughts about mentoring, a lot of thoughts about people from uh, different backgrounds doing stand-up. So I'm sure we'll get onto that subject as well. I find it really interesting that you said, let's not beat around the bush. The thing that's different, the thing that's weird about this podcast is don't talk about it, that I am a medic who does stand-up. And the fact of the matter, for me, I have met medics who have done stand-up, medics from Bristol University who have done stand-up. Yeah. I've not met many black people in Bristol doing stand-up. So you, <laughs> you don't see that it's unusual, or maybe you do, but, but you felt that it was more unusual that you're a medical student doing stand-up than I think that you're a black guy in Bristol doing stand-up. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, like, I, I guess because you kind of just get used to it. Like, you get used to being <laughs> you get used to being a person. black <laughs> Yeah, you got to, I mean, I bet you, you'd be surprised, Mark. Being black gets easier as you go older. But it's no, like, hey, this is, <laughs> this is an interesting, this is genuinely an interesting conversation. Do you get used to being black? Like, and does that mean, was there, was, do you get used to being working class, Mark? <laughs> was there a point? Was there a point? Was yeah. there a point when you weren't used to being black? Um, I would say, well, no, because I I came out this way. I came out the package this way. But <laughs> yes. I'd say I say it it's use it. You get used to it in that if I if I was aware of all the times I was the only black person doing stuff, I would be constantly thinking about it every single day. So it's like. Either you get used to it or you're constantly hyper aware of being the only person who looks like you in a room. So I guess because I just, I kind of just accept it as a prerequisite. I never really thought about it in stand-up because it's like, yeah, of course I'm the only black person. It's just the way it's always been. So I guess that's probably how my mind sees it. Does that, oh, this is, it feels like, I want Gronya to turn up now because this feels like this could turn into a therapy session. But does that, <laughs> is, is that something that is, um, is that something that makes you sad or is it just something that is just the way it is? Like, would you rather not be the only black person in a lot of these situations? Interesting. Ah, I mean... I'm not going to lie. It's a real niche that I've cornered in the Southwest. Um, <laughs> so in the same way you don't want to talk about TV warm up, I'm not going to lie. Being the only black person has made my life easier because I'm the only person telling the jokes that I'm telling. <laughs> <laughs> but but it would it would be nice having other black people not being the only black person in a room at some with some things because, you know, it's it would be fun to have someone to talk about the experience with. And, you know, there are some people coming through now, like, like with the um, work that like Pravanya Pile is doing and like you with all like the um, outreach stuff. There are some people who are like younger than me who are starting to do stand up in the Southwest, which is good. Uh, but yeah, I think I am just, I am just used to it, especially since I went to like such a white school, like, <laughs> yeah, such a white school. All the teachers were white and they just didn't even care. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting uh it's a really interesting conversation. Um, and one of the things that I, I like about our little podcast that we can have these conversations. And I'm fairly sure that some people <laughs> might listen going, uh their bumholes clenching at the mere <laughs> Um, uh, Ricky, we're back. I, I don't know where in that conversation we dropped off uh, because my, uh, I don't know whose signal went. I was uh, I was staring at Zoom waiting for you to come back. I texted you and you were like, no, I'm still here. So was it <laughs> me who went? Yeah, you just went all silent and I just saw your name on the screen. And I was like, okay, and I guess he's gone. And do you think I was, 
do you think I was sent away because the people at the Zoom were so were so awkward about the conversation <laughs> that we were having? Yeah, yeah. The people at Zoom are very anti-working class. Very <laughs> I think um, that's quite well known. Uh, Gronya Maguire is our guest today. Hello, Gronya. Hello. Um, uh, Gronya, meet Ricky. Ricky, meet Gronya. Hi, Ricky. Hello. Hello. Um, the conversation we were the conversation we were having. <laughs> um, I will keep. I will get you up to speed with this very quickly. Is I on the first series of uh, Oh Captain, My Captain? Um, we had Tanya Moore as a guest, and I asked Ricky <laughs> innocently if Ricky <laughs> if Ricky had any black friends because. Um. Ricky went to quite a white school, goes to quite a white university, is doing quite a white course. Today, I asked him, again innocently, does Ricky have any working class friends? <laughs> and uh, Ricky found that just as humorous and just as awkward um, as the conversation about does Ricky have any black friends? Um, Gronya, do you have any posh friends? Are you working class? We were talking about class. We were talking about what what's it like being the only black guy on a comedy set, on a comedy bill. What's it like being the only woman on a comedy bill? What's it like being the only, is comedy really middle-class, too middle-class? Um, I've thrown all of these conversations at you. I've thrown, I've wrapped them up in a little ball and I've thrown them at Gronya Maguire <laughs> as your way of coming into this conversation. Do you have thoughts, GM? First of all, I want to ask Ricky, do you have any Irish friends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I actually have quite a few because loads okay. of people from Ireland come to Bristol Uni. Okay, I feel more relaxed now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's such a weird, it's such a, class is such a weird thing as a non-British person to talk about because in Ireland we just don't have a similar caste system that you guys seem to cling on to. So I think in the framework of class in the UK, I'm working class, but in Ireland, it's not something we, there's no culture attached to it in the same way there is here. There's like oh, some, okay. people, some people are like richer, obviously, and some people are poorer, but it's, I think it's because we're a smaller country and we're mm. much more agricultural. I just don't, it just doesn't, there's not as much identity tied up in where you are in the class spectrum. Whereas yeah, English I people have a, I've got a friend from I've got a friend from Chile and uh, my friend Magdalena, when she first came over here, I'm trying to explain the word posh to someone <laughs> from uh, from Chile is is almost impossible because it's not about having money because there yeah. are some people who don't have money who are posh. Uh, and there are some people who have money who aren't posh. Uh, it's not. It's a very, very interesting conversation. I didn't realise um, that. I suppose that England kind of has that obsession more than more than anywhere else. I think so. I remember. I found it so strange when I moved to London for the first time. I just couldn't believe that there was. I just couldn't believe that like there was such little like mixing, you know, that like working class people went to working class pubs, socialized with working class people. I just found it really unnerving and really strange, really odd. Um, and we were talking about uh, Ricky often being the only black guy on a bill, especially in the West Country. Were you often the only woman on a bill? Are you still often the only woman on a bill I mean or in a, in a writer's room? It's, I just think it's so bad. And I just, I, I'm kind of losing patience with it a little bit. Something seems to have happened over the pandemic with, it seems to be normal to have all male lineups again. I just think it is absolutely, I just have no patience for it anymore. Before the world ended, I went to New York to see some stand-up, you know, to sort of be inspired. And it was the first time I went to sort of a puncher in many, many years because you know, if I'm gigging, the fact that I'm there means there's a woman on the bill. But mm. I just, I went to a few nights 
in um, Manhattan. And three of the nights I went to had all male lineups. And mm. just <clears throat> as a puncher, I just, I was so, I was so angry. But when the headline act came out and it was another man, I genuinely, I was like, well, I'm not going to enjoy this guy's set. I'm just leaving because I was so furious. So seeing from the perspective of what it's like to be a woman or anybody really in an audience with such the same type of perspective, point of view again and again and again, I just have, I just think there should be zero tolerance. I think if you run a night and you've got an all white male lineup, you are a bad running your night and you should be embarrassed. So I think it's still really normal to have an all white lineup to have an all male lineup and I think anybody who does it should be really embarrassed. I mean you know in the West Country in Wales we fixed that, right? You oh, know that you? We've, Oh yeah no we've uh, we've solved uh misogyny. Yeah we've solved uh, <laughs> uh sexism. I mean I, I I say that jokingly but actually Ricky when have you ever done an all male night in Bristol? In Bristol let me think uh probably not actually like yeah no i don't think so yeah no in bristol probably not like i think in bristol it's quite good um but having not run a night like i've literally still new to comedy fresh-faced ricky what what is that like where there are just these all or like white male lineups like because i don't know what the amount the types of people are who apply or what it looks like like is it really just like a purposeful choice or like what's going on there like just with the logistics of putting on a night i think from my point of view it's just laziness i think it's just absolute laziness and i think it's bias on behalf of the person booking it about what a good comedian looks like and mm. i think it looks so dated and it's just so incredibly tedious and i just i am embarrassed I, i'm angry but i'm I, if i was on the bill i would hope to be embarrassed because it's so, it just looks really bad. It just looks so Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, to me, that's the thing. So, so, I don't know if we've had this conversation, actually, because I don't think when we've seen each other in the last couple of weeks, we've spoken about this. But um, when we did the Bristol, uh, the BBC New Comedy Awards this year, and we did the showcase in Bristol for the Wales and West, there were 14 acts on that bill, uh, 12 women and two men. Lovely. As it um, should be. Well, as it, yeah, 100% <laughs> as it should be. And actually, if, if you look at, and I think it's the, the reason that there were 12 women and two men is because consciously we have made a decision in Bristol to uh, Mr. Wolves or at the Smoke and Mirrors, and the Smoke and Mirrors is run by women um, and compared by women. Um, we've made the efforts, at least in the gigs that I have, to always make sure that there are women on the bill and to where we can try and get non-white people on the bill and we've we've made that effort and i think for people in bristol now and for me you go to an all-white male bill it seems a bit shit mm. <laughs> like um yeah and the class thing you're right you you can't talk about that because because you don't know. You you have to ask everyone specifically. And as you've already said, it's only Brit it's only English people who seem massively obsessed with that as a subject. Mm. Um but it is interesting. But we did not get you on the podcast to talk about that, Gronya Maguire. <laughs> what? Yes, we didn't. <laughs> I decided that women in comedy can sometimes talk about stuff that isn't <laughs> women in comedy. Oh, <laughs> what, what do you think about that, eh? I mean, don't tell anybody else. I'll have to start having an opinions on other things. It'll be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk, to use this episode, uh, to talk about writing in comedy, writing comedy. Um, Ricky, how often would you say, you said you had a quite a chill day today and you were doing some writing. Were mm -hmm. you writing bits of stand-up or? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you writing, yeah. Writing stand-up, yeah. Uh, probably, so I'll go through like really weird phases. So I'll write basically once a week, but it, it'll only be like a specific 
couple of weeks where I'm actually like, I'm writing new material to go into my actual act. So I haven't added new material in like, in like a while because I've been trying to get my 10 to 15 minutes down, like cutting away, adding new little bits and stuff. But in terms of actually writing for stand-up, I don't do that that frequently. Um, mm. I will put my perspective in. I don't write at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, where are you? Uh, where are you, Gronya, in the terms of writing for yourself? How often do you? How often do you spend coming up with jokes for uh, yourself? Well, I would. It's so tricky. I mean, I think when writing for yourself, especially with yourself, you, the, all of this, by the way, is such a huge amount of privilege because I, when I started doing stand-up, I was like working nine to five, gigging every night. And then when I'd hear people say, oh, you need to be gigging or you need to be writing for an hour every day, at least, I would be like, are you kidding me? Like, when do I sleep? So everything I say comes from a position of real privilege of like that I now have the time to, you know, put this time into writing but um I would try, I usually write for at least an hour or two hours just on stuff for myself and then there's sort of various projects that I would be doing but it's not like I would be I'm always I think like I sort of view writing as like you know you're catched 5k so I try and do something every day that's sort of exercising that part of my brain whether it's like stand up or writing newsletters or sketches or something like that because I think if you stop doing it for a while you sort of freeze and then you have to sort of get yourself back into the habit of it so I try and just keep chipping away that's my method um, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you as a guest uh, for this particular subject apart from that uh, I am a fan and I like you, um, is that you run or have run uh, comedy writing courses. Mm. And the people I know who have done those comedy writing courses, uh, newer comics who have done them, absolutely rave about oh. So I thought to myself, let's see if we can, like, get a bit about get a little bit of like basically a bit of a freebie if i'm <laughs> honest but without taking business away from you because i'm guessing you're are you still doing those courses I am, i'm a little bit busy at the moment so i'm doing my next one probably in the new year but i do sort of like fit them around other bits and pieces of the freelance landscape that we live in <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the like I said, the people who I know have done them are just they they say how kind of inspiring it is to be, I suppose, be told that you can write or because you don't tell you don't tell people how to write comedy, do you? Like you don't say this is the only way to do it. No, because I mean I think the thing is you can't teach somebody to be musical, but you can teach people piano chords. And I think it's the same with writing. It's like you know, you read these comedy writing books and they it's almost like the recipe books and you think, oh my God, it has to be like this and this and this. And really it's about giving yourself games to play so that you really all writing all creativity is about how long can you concentrate for that's all it is and it's about how we self-sabotage and sort of distract ourselves because we're scared to actually write so it's those two things so it's about self-soothing or just whatever you need to do to get over that fear of actually being like okay I'm going to try and let's find out actually how good I am rather than just procrastinating and what do you do so you're not just sitting staring out a window? So what games can you play to keep yourself on the page? The longer you're on the page, the more likely you are to come up with ideas. That's all it is, really. Oh, OK. I had a conversation this morning uh, over Twitter with um, an actress in Bristol. Uh, she's a comedy actress. She's never done any stand-up. Um, and I'm trying to make her do stand-up. Um, and she's never done it before. She finds it absolutely petrifying. Uh, Ricky has done 
30 gigs or so. How many is it now, Ricky? Actually, it's up to about 50, isn't it? Yeah, and that's like 55, I think. Yeah, so Ricky's done about 55 gigs, but this girl has not done any stand-up at all yet. So can you, Grandier, and Ricky, tell me what I should say to this girl to help her get her first five minutes of stand-up? Ooh, interesting. What would you say, Ricky? Uh, so she's an actress. Is that is that what you said? Yeah, she's an actor. She's done comedy acting. Uh, she's done bits of pieces, uh, little bits of telly, but not much. Um, okay. She seems she seems funny. So she seems like she's got funny bones. She's done uh, sort of the monologues and stuff, but she's never done stunt. Okay. So I would say, hmm, I would say, well a good way of getting started is to watch obviously watch people doing stand-up so whether that means going to open mic nights or um watching like a really good one that i you, you that i recommend to people is the the blackout at up the creek their five minutes because that's like kind of what you're aiming for like that's a good version of what you're aiming for um, but I would say in terms of the actual writing, I think a good thing to do is like whenever, cause every day, like everyone experiences stuff that is funny or that they think is funny or something in their group of friends or whatever. So just have a notepad or something on your phone that you can write down any ideas that you have, even if it's in the shower or whatever. And then from there, where you can dedicate a period of time, whether it's daily or weekly, or even if it's just one hour before you go up to take all those ideas and try to knit them together in a five minutes. Um, yeah, that's, and then from there, once you have the funny stuff, then you can start thinking about how it fits into a routine, like by watching other people do stand-ups and like getting the rhythm of comedy down. And yeah, that's how I um, suggest to people to start. Yeah, I think that's all great. I think going to see stand-up is really, really helpful because, you know, when you're starting out, you see like Netflix or you see like Live the Apollo and you think that's what your first gig is going to be like. And you mm. think that's, you know, you're comparing yourself to, but really when you start out especially I found when I started out and you see these people and they're so arrogant and they were like oh my god like I'm you know gigging three times a night and blah 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 and then you see their set and you're like oh my god well if you can have that confidence with material that bad you know I'm going to give it a go <laughs> so that's always really good for uh, giving yourself a bit of uh, yeah entitlement to be there and I also think just like simple things, like just keep it simple. You know, it's a bit like it's a, people kind of want to tackle all these big things and blah, blah, blah. And it can be a bit overwhelming. And I think if you just keep it really simple, like I think a really fun exercise is like list things that really annoy you, but keep it specific because mm. sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming if you go like, Oh, I don't know, like institutionalized racism. That can be quite hard to make funny in three minutes. But if it's people who check their phone while they're walking down the street, you know, like tiny specific things like that, the more specific, the better. And then if you have fun with it, so you maybe could do an exercise where you're arguing why people who check their phone while they're walking down the street are the best people in the whole world because then that stops you from getting too earnest about it so pick things really specific things that annoy you and then come up with arguments why actually they're great see it's just like a silly then it's just like a silly game rather than something too impossibly difficult to do in five minutes yeah i suppose it goes back to your analogy of the couch to 5k which incidentally i did and then stopped and i definitely <laughs> need to do again um but you're i think you're right because i think it comedy is a bit of a muscle isn't it and so you just have to kind of keep that muscle going a little bit but very few people can jump into a 10k or a marathon from a standing start mm -mm. and i think it's about as well the two things that sort of the two sort of like 
not mistake, but assumptions people make that are really unhelpful is they think so they, they, they think you write when you're in a funny mood. That's I used to think that too. And it's are you when you're in the zone, when you're feeling creative, then you sit down. But it's that's putting the the coach the coach before the horse. Is that the expression? Art. Part before the horse. I was thinking I'm more fancy. Maybe I am upper class. <laughs> but in the carriage before the horse, because you only get in a creative mood by doing writing. So I think what I always say to people is like, you just have to, it's not like you rent a cabin in the woods and write your Edinburgh show in five days. You just write a little bit and often, and then every now and then you have moments of like, oh my God, this is really good. I'm really enjoying it. And when those moments come, like brilliant, but you can't rely on that feeling because you'll just never get any good. It's about just like, that graft, the whole like, I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes, even if it's like pulling teeth, even if I hate it, 10 minutes, I'm going to write something. And then tomorrow I'll look back at what I've written and it could be good or it could be terrible. It doesn't matter. But if you're just consistently just, it, that's it's so boring. It's like running is so boring. Anything, you know, that is worthwhile, it's not brilliant all the time. And it's just not putting pressure on yourself and allowing yourself to have those days and not see it as a reflection of your talent, your ability. It's nothing. It's just part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. I think also like kind of similar to that. Like I think, I think it was Morgan Reese who told, who mentioned this uh, in when we used to do those little, um, I don't know what we call them, like seminar things where we were on Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he we were talking about writing and stuff, and I think he got it from a book that he were, that he read ages ago, like the morning pages, and I I used to do it, but like my discipline went very quickly because I it involved me waking up a bit early, which is obviously very difficult, and um, it's literally where you just get up every morning and you just open up a word document or get a piece of pen a pen a piece of paper and just write for about 20 minutes to 40 minutes and whatever you want just write completely and and utterly it can be stuff that makes sense stuff that doesn't make sense and what is interesting is if you do that for long enough eventually when you start looking back at what you've been writing you eventually start to actually create material because just because get, getting because what it does is it gives you the routine of actually getting there and sitting down. So I think that's that I think that's a good that really helped me when I was starting out because it got me to stop thinking about trying to be funny when I sit down and write and it actually just got me to start writing. Ricky, do you um, find that when you are writing stuff, you you think, oh, that's a rule of three, or that's a pullback and reveal, or that's a callback, or um, that's a bit of alliteration? Like, do you do you think of those things consciously, um, or do you just do it? I I just do it. I can't, I can't think of it consciously. If I think of it consciously, I think I overthink it. But what, so, so like with the way that I write, I think of funny things and then I write around it. Basically what I explained earlier. And if let's say I think of a fully formed bit just while I'm walking around, then I'll write that down in its entirety. But if I read it to myself or I put it on stage and it doesn't work, then I'll be like, oh, how can I make this funnier? Then maybe I'm like, oh, actually, no, it doesn't work because they already see what it is. Like they, you reveal it too quickly in the pullback and reveal or the rule of three doesn't work because they know that the third one's going to be weird or something. So it's like I kind of try and use that technical stuff after the humor has come just because my mind doesn't work like that. What about you, Gronya? Do you kind of, those things that we're often told make jokes, those those rules, I suppose, that you can find in, in books about joke writing, do you think they are super important or do you think they kind of have no importance or do you think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle? Well, I think they're really 
good for I think I think they're the easiest things for people to teach so I think that's why when you read a lot of sort of like not very good comedy writing books that's all they have but it's just like face tuning or auto tuning they're not like the funny thing is your premise the funny thing is your persona and your attitude and your idea and then all this sort of stuff is like to like yeah it's like auto tuning it to make sure it's like clearest snappiest you know, you're using the most like the most exaggerated image. You're ending on the funniest bit. All of those stuffs are tweaks rather than. I don't think I could sit down and be like, I'm going to write a funny rule of three joke. But just like it's just like a natural sort of rhythm. You're like, oh, if I add another beat to this, I'll probably get an extra laugh. But it's your it's your idea that's the funny bit. That's the the most important bit, really. You as well, like not just your idea comes from you. All of that stuff mm. comes from your personality, comes from your experience. I think that's why the idea and going back to the conversation that we had at the beginning of this podcast that may or may not make the edit about all, the, <laughs> <laughs> about all white male bills is that the reason that they aren't as good is because there isn't as much of a range of experiences and stories and styles and personalities within that. To me, as someone that compares so much, the reason I like diverse bills is because I know that the five or six people I'm going to introduce are going to have, hopefully, at least four or five different uh, points of view, viewpoints on the world. Yeah. It's just mm. better. It's just better. And it's well, it's like, what sort of audiences do you want to attract as well? You know, if, if it's the same, yeah, demographic, you're you're just sort of it, it reinforcing the idea that that's that, you know, that's the status quo and that's the audience that the club wants to attract. So it can be quite alienating for other people. So it makes business sense. <laughs> uh, talking, <laughs> of, uh, talking of audiences, do you write for yourself, Gronya, or do you write for the audience? Who, who do you want to make laugh? You have to write for yourself. You can try and write for the audience, but it will be so bad. It will just, it's like trying to be, like going on stage and trying to be funny is like going to a party and trying to be charming. Like it just doesn't work. It's so fake and it just, you could you can learn to be, I'm sure, good, but you'll never you'll never be great I mean very few of us will ever be great but you definitely won't be great if you're trying to second guess what the audience wants because that just it just it's it's it will be so bad you it has to be what you find funny and obviously you can't be too self-indulgent you know it's a balancing act but you can't go into it trying to please an imaginary audience in your head because it will just it would be so bad. I can't think of a more sophisticated way of saying it, but just really bad. <laughs> just, just, that's made you shudder a little bit, hasn't it? Just, it? It's just so can... hack. It's just so, you can just tell. It just, ugh. yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's just impossible because it's just, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, I think Gronya seems to have uh, got herself in some sort of feedback loop <laughs> of just really just maybe having seen open spots who just go, okay, this is what comedy should be like. This is what audiences should be. <laughs> and so I'm just going, and Gronya's going, no. So but I it's will. like you see it because you can see it. You see it, you know, if you've been doing stand up for a while, you see which comedian everybody's trying to be like. It's mm. so, and it's so. Yeah, it just never ends well. It just is, so, you can just tell, oh, you, we, Ricky Gervais is popular at the moment. Oh, everybody wants to sound like Russell Howard. Now everybody wants to sound like Joel Domit. Now everybody sounds, sounds like James A. Caster. And it just, you live long enough and you see it. <laughs> the life cycles. <laughs> I'm it's desperately, not- uh, I'm desperately waiting for the moment that everyone wants to sound like Mark Olver. Oh. <laughs> Imagine it. Imagine just loads of people just asking the audience what their favourite service station is. (laughs) And do do they like crisps? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I um I don't write enough. I definitely don't write enough. I think my excuse, and do you know what? I think it's a fairly good excuse for me at the moment. Is I don't really gig because I do so many so much TV warm up. I don't really mm. gig, but I miss gigging so much. And so when I do get the opportunity to gig, I am all over it. Gronya, you write for other people. Do you do you find as much joy writing for other people as you do for yourself? I think it's tricky. It's a really tricky question because um, I remember when I first, I did this Radio 4 Writers Bursary and that was a whole year of just writing for Radio 4 shows. And it was really good, but it was also, I when I left, I just was, I really struggled because I just thought, what do I find funny? Like if I'm not being asked to write for other people, what do I find funny? And it, I found it really hard after a whole year of writing for other people to just be like, genuinely, if somebody at the time, if somebody had said, here's a million pound, make your own sketch show, what, what, what would you, how would you like that? I wouldn't, I, at the time I wouldn't have known because I was just so used to just writing to order. And I think at the end of the day, it's a craft and an art form and I, for me personally, I love writing for the people. I really love the collaborativeness of it. And I really, really enjoy it. But also it's so important that like, for me, that I have my own voice as well. And whether that's stand up or I, I really enjoyed writing newsletters over lockdown or making sketches, whatever it is, you have to have your own voice as well. And I think both of them, I don't think one I think both helps the other. I don't think there's like, you know, it's a uh, it's a zero sum war between the two. I think it's really important to have both. So I love both. <laughs> Do you, uh, and you also love teaching people to write as well? I just, I really love just, because I, I, it's always the same thing. People always think that it's unique their problems are unique to them. And it's so lovely to be able to say, look, everybody panics. Everybody after five minutes doesn't want to do it. Everybody thinks what they've written that day is shit. Like it's, everybody feels like that. The good news is everybody feels like that. The bad news is it never goes away. That's it. So <laughs> just, and I just think it's just so nice to, because the thing is really sort of arrogant entitled people think everything they do is brilliant and then they do really well and it's so nice to kind of be like the nice people who aren't arrogant to kind of help them and be like no like just be kind to yourself because there's this masochistic idea that to be creative you have to be like you know beating yourself up the whole time and it's so it's so unhelpful so it's just so lovely to say you can be nice to yourself you can make writing a positive thing that adds to your day and be good at it and it's not cheating if you actually you know buy yourself a nice pen and you know bloody light a scented candle and then have a biscuit after you've done it like that's it's you have to be nice to yourself otherwise you won't do it and then you won't get any better so I really really love reassuring people that you know they're not on their own I um I've got a new motto that I've been working on I don't know if I've talked about it on this uh podcast yet but I've been trying to I've been trying. No, I've been. I've been trying to finesse it. When people ask me for advice about about comedy, um, whether it's performance or writing or just about their career in general, I've got this new motto, and I'm slowly finessing it. So, and it, it links into what uh, to what Gronia just said, which is give enough of a fuck to do well, but not so much of a fuck that you don't enjoy it. Mm. Mm. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, give enough of a fuck to do the writing every day, but don't give so much of a fuck that you get so stressed during that writing that you forget about the scented candle and the biscuit. I think that's really good, because I think it's so easy to be like, I need to put my nose to the grindstone and be like, yeah, I'm an artist, art of war, whatever. But it's like... Sometimes you just need to chill because it's a marathon, not a sprint. 
And I think as well, I think it's really, really important. And I'm slowly learning this myself in that you kind of, you work, you know, with anything, you work really hard, you want to, you know, but like separate your self-esteem and your value as a human being from one, definitely how your career is going and two, like the creative process, because like it is a marathon, it's a long game, but you have to like yourself. It, you have to kind of have a core like kindness to yourself and to other people and be like, I could work really hard and on this sitcom script, for example, but it doesn't mean it will get made or it doesn't mean it will be any good, but I'm still a good person and I still should be proud of myself. So I think mm. if, you, if you tie all your value in stuff that is completely outside of your control, which so much of this is, all you can control is, am I enjoying whatever I'm doing? Am I approaching it from a, a vulnerable, honest point of view? And am I giving it my best shot? That's all you can control. The rest, so much of this industry is like 98% look. And, you know, we sort of go, oh yeah, wink, wink, but it'll be different for me. It's not, it's like, it's all look. All you, all you can control is, that's why I love like, I think that's why I love the writing so much. It's, you control over it. You just, you know, get a notebook out. You spend an hour and it's just you and your creative higher power. That's it. And you don't need anything from anybody else. And the more you can just enjoy that process, the more you'll do it, you know, and who knows what will happen next, but just try and enjoy what you can control and try not to get your self-esteem from things that you can't control. We are. We should do T-shirts with all this. Shit. <laughs> we can. Oh, yeah. Captain, my Captain, control what you can. Control. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Gwania, are there or would you say three top tips for people who want to? I'll tell you what. Give me one tip for someone who has never written stand up before. One tip for someone who is quite new and wants to get better and one tip for someone who is super experienced. Uh, and uh, basically that's me. <laughs> so one tip, <laughs> one tip for the girl I was speaking to this morning who had never done it before, one tip for Ricky and one tip for Mark Olver. I, I mean, I, to be honest, because so many, so like when I'm running the writing classes, so many times I say things and I'm like, uh, Gromia, when did you do that last? So <laughs> yeah. all of these are like, I think it's, it's like running, <laughs> like you've never finished running. So I think it's quite helpful to, like I was saying, just try and get into a practice of writing every day. And I think this is really helpful. If you say, I'm writing about it, but it's no view to ever showing anybody what I'm writing, doing mm. anything with what I'm writing. It's not like, okay, yes, how can I make biscuits funny? If you're just like, biscuits, what does that remind me of? You know, go on a little journey thinking about biscuits with no pressure whatsoever. So I would say just get a notebook. I know it's the oldest thing. Get a notebook and write it down. But if you just get yourself into the habit of writing a little bit and often with no pressure whatsoever to produce or show anybody anything of what you've written. And it can be as embarrassing, as awful, as vulnerable, as stupid as you like, because nobody's going to see it. So I think that's really helpful. You know, we, uh, you know we all eat digestives upside down. Huh? <laughs> what? We all eat we all eat chocolate digestives upside down. What? what? Did you know that? Chocolate <laughs> digest cho chocolate digestives. Yeah. Imagine you're eating a chocolate digestive now. Yeah. Yeah. How are you eating that chocolate digestive? Chocolate on top. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the way, isn't it? Ricky Masindo, you're doing the same? Yeah, I'm doing the same. I'm not an animal. Yeah. Um uh, no, uh you're wrong. Uh, according to McVitie's, uh, you should eat the uh, digestive chocolate down. What? Why? <laughs> uh, that's how they designed it. They designed it with uh, the logo on the bottom. Well, the logo on the top. So, yeah, you, you, we're, we're all eating chocolate digestives uh, the wrong way up. Huh. I want to buy some digestives to kind of co corroborate this. They, they need to let that one go. Yeah, they I think the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> yeah. 
I found out the other day, I, I've been talking about this a lot on stage recently, I've been finding out that I make sandwiches wrong. But I just butter <laughs> one piece of bread and most oh. two pieces of bread. You butter one piece of bread? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, all my life, I've just made sandwiches by buttering one piece of bread. Did Mark and Thatcher steal butter as well as milk? Is that what this comes from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I, uh, I I get my bread, I put one bit of butter on it, I put the filling on, on it, uh, and then I put the bread on top and I eat it. And I only discovered the other day that uh, most people uh, butter both slices of bread and then make the sandwich. Mm. Have you tried mean- it? Have you tried it with two buttered breads now? Well, I don't see the point in it because if you want more butter on the sandwich, put it more because you're you're eating that sandwich in one go, like so one bite. Your taste buds aren't differentiating between uh, sort of top layer and bottom layer butter. Your taste buds aren't vertical; they're just horizontal <laughs> when you go in. <laughs> but wait, isn't the isn't the top? Let's say the top one has no butter on it. Isn't the yep. first? Bite really dry. What are you talking about? You're a medic. Are you no. are you saying to me that when, what do you mean the first bite? You, you're not going. It's not even the first bite. You're saying that the first half of the bite is really yeah, dry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first. Yeah, but no one has ever said. Bite. No one has ever said the sentence. Oh, the first. There's no such thing as a a half a bite. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever said that because most people butter both their slices of bread. I think as an act of self-care, you should treat yourself to two buttered bread sandwiches. Just just for the, just for divilment, just to see what it tastes like. Um, my point. Uh, my point <laughs> in this conversation was that <laughs> that even something as simple as a sandwich, there are things that you can talk about and ways to discuss that that isn't just thinking about a sandwich. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I think that is, that's one of the points that uh, Ron, you were saying about, you know, just writing every day and writing the things that you, these are thoughts that just come to me. Um, these aren't thoughts that kind of, I think, oh, I definitely should put that in stand up or I should definitely. And then when I think them, I'm like, oh, I think there's something in that. Like the mm. fact that I'm 46 and I can't swim and most <laughs> people under the age of 30 can swim. Like these are just things that I think about but then because I am a stand-up, I'm then able to weave them into the weird way that I make money. What I would say is, so my second bit of advice for people who, and it, this one is painful, like, oh my God, I hate doing it, but it does make a huge difference, is when you try out new material, obviously record it, but then type it out verbatim how you say it because you suddenly it's incredible because it's like oh that's why that joke isn't working because I've I've invented a whole paragraph between the setup and the punchline that I didn't even realize I was saying or oh well that's because I I basically repeated the same word three times or whatever it is it's so tedious but it makes a massive difference it makes such a big difference but it is brutal if you have the, if you have, if you have it in you, I definitely think typing out your set word with every um and as and anything in it, if you could type that out, it's really good. Yes, absolutely. I, I hope, I wholeheartedly agree with that, and I have never done it <laughs> in my life. But I totally agree that people should do that, and I take the reason I think people should do that, and I never will. But the reason I think everyone else should is. Because when people want advice about their sets, what I always want to say to them, especially if it's not gone that well, I want to say, can you point at where you thought the laughs should be? Mm-hmm. Like, so, um, and as Gronje just said then, if you type it out, and I would say type it out in very clearly demarcated paragraphs, so we're bullet point, not bullet points, but like do the whole thing, but leave gaps between every sort of new point or every thought. You can then go, was there a laugh in that paragraph? And look how long it took for that bit. And, and point at me, point at the bit where you think I 
or the audience should have. Mm. I'm always interested in that when I see someone not have a good gig and I'm like, where did you think the laugh was meant to be? <sighs> yeah, it's brutal, but it is. It's so, oh God, it's painful, but it does. I, want, I thought your noise was you disagreeing with me then. No, but... no, 100%. <laughs> 100%. But it, was, it was actually you going, oh God, I hate that so much. Yeah. I've been told I make weird no I've been told I've got a very like I think I'm a bit like Marge Simpson. I make a lot of like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. and my final bit of advice, very similar, is again, it takes ages, but it's really helpful if there are like there's some like amazing, like short little routines that are like five minutes long that are just iconic. And if you sit down and if you type them out. It's just really helpful to be like, oh, that's how that routine works. For the language that comedian uses is so good or it's just very good. It's like the nearest you have to like taking apart a clock. So if you have the time, which of course is a privilege, I definitely think like just looking up short YouTube clips of comedians that you, you find really interesting and typing out the routine is very helpful. Oh, okay. So we do um, a feature on this podcast called The Reading List, where Mm. we have a comedian who acts as the librarian, and the librarian suggests stand-up and comedy and things that people should watch and listen. So we've had Nish and Jim Carr, Lucy Porter, Angela Barnes, uh, Dane Baptiste. We've had a few. So I've I've never thought about this, but actually... If you do listen to this podcast, go back and listen to some of those reading best ones and do what Gronia said. Do the John Mulaney meeting Bill Clinton thing and listen mm. to that and type it out and see how John Mulaney... Can you do a shortcut, Gronia, and just go... You know how Stuart Lee has got transcripts of his uh, of his shows? Uh, do you I think- mean... <sighs> I don't know whether it's like the purish and grad grind in me that's like, no, you have to type it out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. My instinct is to say that's cheating, but I'm sure it's not. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. But I think John Bellini is a good example because he comes from a writing background. His, st- especially he's got like that really university um, routine about how universities, you know, charge people so much money and they're very discreet routines that are like six minutes long and are perfect so typing those out and just the rhythm and cadence and the the language he uses is really it's it's fantastic and it's all free and it's all on the internet so you can just it's there it's a huge reserve of knowledge and skill that's available to us all and I would, I will absolutely uh, echo Gronja's point, but I would also say feel free to cheat. I know yeah. that Morgan Reese yeah. has uh, has found certain places on the internet that do transcripts of quite a lot of uh, people's shows. I know that one. Um, I'm being, <laughs> I don't know if you heard that then, I'm being heckled. Oh, I know what happened. I said, um, I echo Gronja... And my my Alexa machine, which I call Echo, um, listen to me. <laughs> so she's, now, she's now talking to me in the background because I said the e That was such a confusing couple <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Sorry. Good luck with the edit, Ricky. Um, <laughs> I, I really like that advice, Gwanya. And again, I will never do it. But I really, uh, I really like it. Um, Ricky, has this been um, has this been helpful? Oh yeah, extremely helpful. Yeah, like I think it's good for us to talk about the writing side because I think a lot of people think it's a lot harder than it needs to be. Because I mean, I like writing, so I've always enjoyed it. But you know, I do need to be more disciplined with it. Yeah, that's all it is. It's just yeah. a muscle. If that's all it is, it's couch to five k. I know we've done a. We've done a lot of running analogies in this <laughs> uh, in this particular episode. Um, I think Ricky's point there was really good, though, and I think that's kind of maybe what I was hoping we would get out of this, which is people do seem to... I'm trying to get rid of barriers. I'm trying to get rid of barriers uh, 
to comedy, which is why last week we spoke to Andrew Bird about um, uh, where to park for free and what you stole uh, from your local pub when you started doing stand-up and how you only ate at gigs because we're trying to get rid of as many barriers as possible to starting stand-up. And I think you're right, Ricky. I think one of the barriers is that maybe people do think that writing stand-up is harder than it should be at the beginning because, as Gwanya said, they're used to watching Netflix. They're used to watching these specials and they're used to watching people who have been gigging for 20 or 25 years. And actually what we should be looking at is how can we write our first five minutes? But what? But sorry to interrupt, but what I will say is I think it's not like, oh, this is easier than I thought, like except that it is hard, like except that it is hard, but that doesn't, that's just... That it's not unique to you. It's like running and getting out of breath. Like it is hard, but I always think of something like if I've got something to do that's difficult, I think of like time as like you're diluting it. So the more you do it, the less pressure you put on yourself. So let's say if you've got a gig, a new material gig, and you leave it to the night before, okay, right, you it's hard and now you've given yourself no time and there's extra stress but if you just write a little bit every day it's still as hard but you've kind of diluted the pressure because you've got there's no time pressure because you've given yourself enough time so I think if you're always just writing a little bit every day it's it's your yeah I don't know if that makes any sense I always think that as you're diluting it you're just making it easier and you're like right this is really difficult but it's only going to be difficult for like 10 minutes and then I probably will get into some sort of flow. So it's like, except, it's about like, how much do you want to get good at this? Are you willing for it to feel slightly uncomfortable in your brain for like 10 minutes for it to be good at something? Because that's all it takes. You know, take all the, you know, you know, oh, you have to be a genius. So you have to be, you know, a moment of inspiration. No, do you want to sit with a horrible feeling in your brain for 15 minutes in order to get good at something. Okay, that's as bad as it will be. I like that. That's it. I'm having a good think. <laughs> I like there's not, en- there's not enough podcasts where people, because most podcasts, people just keep talking. Uh, I'd like this to be a podcast where we just have a little moment for the person mm-hmm. listening and for me and Ricky to go, Oh, that's a good point, Grod, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Mm. And on that bombshell, I should probably have to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've done it. You've solved it. You can absolutely go because you've solved Grod, yeah, thank you so much. An absolute pleasure. Thank um, you so much, like, Grod. And, and you, will, you will be doing your writing course soon. I will, but just for everybody else, just remember, no books... Pens, the YouTube, the YouTube, it's free. It's all free. So you don't need any, you've got no barriers. You can be getting better at writing, getting better at your craft every single day. And you don't need stage time and you don't need to spend money on it. It is the cheapest thing. So it's all there. Uh, Gronio Maguire, always so wise and always so brilliant. Uh, Thank you, buddy. I um, I will see you very soon, I hope. I'll see you soon. I'll see you this Friday, I think. Oh, definitely. Right. Later. Oh, Captain. Oh, Captain. My Captain.